Sam, what's up? This is part two of the two-part episode. Enjoy. How's it going, Champagne Sharks? This is T, and it's a total disarray right now. So <laughs> this is our, this is our second attempt. I feel like everyone's drunk and no one's uh, drinking. At least, at least I, I'm not. I, I, haven't slept, you know. I haven't slept in 48 hours, so I'm just kidding. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So you know what? It's a free-for-all. So let's start with Daniel. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Daniel Pessner. I'm a professor. I study the history of U.S. foreign policy um, at the University of Washington. Um, and I think we're going to talk today about a piece I co-wrote with my colleague, Mike Brennis, uh, about uh, academia and the adjunction of the professorial. And we have with us operating both as a co-host and a guest, Andre Domis. Uh, yeah, I don't even really want to follow up Daniel. Holy shit, dude. That's uh, <laughs> just... <laughs> what, what an intro. Yeah, just flex on all my credentials right there. <laughs> so my name is uh, Andre. You can find me on Twitter at Andre Demise, and I am a, a contributing editor to the McLean's Magazine, as well as a occasional columnist with the Golden Mail, the Washington Post, and other publications. And something that not many know about me is that I also happen to be a grad student, though not on the same uh, class nor caliber, obviously, as our uh, good friend Daniel or our next person up. We have with us a third guest, Courtney Rawlings, who sabotaged the first the first <laughs> taping because she asked to do the house. You know, I gotta say house cleaning. House cleaning is like my brand now, so I, I can't switch to housekeeping now. So um, she asked to do the house cleaning, and the whole software went haywire. Apparently, no one else can do house cleaning but me. But if you want to try again, you can try again. Your call, no pressure. But uh, Court Courtney Rawlings, introduce yourself. I'm Courtney Rawlings. I'm a graduate student, but I wanted to say graduate worker slash PhD candidate um, at Emory University, where I'm getting my PhD in art history. And I'm also the co-chair of Emory Unite, our academic union, workers union at Emory. Okay, so do you want to do the housekeeping or do I do it? We can tag team. I, right. I, I got like a, I like took notes though. So like I'm okay. ready. Okay, all right. So I feel like very honored to do the house cleaning, which encourages you to use that delicious $5 a month to go to Patreon. I mean, to subscribe to Champagne Sharks at Patreon forward slash Champagne Sharks. There's a lot of perks. You get back episodes, over a hundred premium episodes. That's a lot. You also get, you got to go on a Discord. I'm not a hundred percent sure what that is. It's some sort of like chat party. And I was listening to T a few weeks ago say that $5 a month, that is 17 cents a day. That's a hundred percent free. So <laughs> <laughs> apparently there's also going to be a new newsletter, but that's only possible if you go to patreon.com, I'm guessing, forward slash champagne sharks. And yeah, support T. He wants to like put out more episodes. He's been doing a great job putting out, wait, is it four a month? Six? Oh man, you're doing so good. You're doing so good. Oh, Eight. First of all, thank you. I did not take notes on that part. Oh no, it's right here. Damn it. Yeah. Oh no. And you get show notes if you pay for the $5 a month slash 17, 17 cents a day. And that's where you get you you are you are such a student. Thank like, you. I'm very impressed. You, you took notes. You you almost missed something. You remembered the last second. Yeah. Well, yeah, I actually so... didn't. But you know, so a part of being a student is knowing when to ask. Uh, well, no. Today I'm a graduate worker.
worker, so, but I have been a student for a long time. <laughs> okay, so like you see, Courtney's a fan and she's obsessed with the, uh, for some reason, I don't know what it is about the house cleaning part. slash keeping. Yeah, yeah, th that is her favorite part. That's what she talks about. So anyway, we're talking about Daniel's article and I'm trying to not really talk too much this time because I think it's interesting to have three tiers of people talk about this who are in the same area of expertise and also i have to imagine there's probably a lot of shop talk you guys want to talk about or andre particularly you probably have a lot of questions that relate to you personally so i was thinking actually i'll let daniel take over because he, he already started doing that you know so <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> So, so it might make sense, I was thinking, sort of just to, to lay out the land for people who might not be familiar with uh, the current state of academia and, and why it might be considered uh, such a problem. And then Courtney and Andre could uh, jump in whenever they, they want to correct me, or if I get something a little wrong, that would be really helpful. But but as a, as a general thing, I think the most important statistic to maybe think about is that uh, roughly 78% of people who teach in, in uh, modern colleges, universities, in in modern America are what are called um, adjuncts. So uh, broadly speaking, there are two classes of professors. There's tenure track and tenured professors. They're the same class. And then there's uh, adjunct professors. So tenured professors and tenure track professors are probably what most people think of when they think of a, a professor, you know, not teaching that much, doing a lot of research, doing some uh, committee work, you know, serving on the committee of ethics or the committee on diversity or whatever it may be, uh, well compensated, you know, roughly middle class income, um, benefits, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the, a tenure track or, and then eventually a tenured uh, professor. And this is sort of what the professor that's in the popular imagination of, of the average American who bothers to uh, think about these things. Um, but on the other side of the tenured slash tenure track professor are, are these adjunct professors. Now, adjunct professors um, basically get paid per class. Uh, and so it's very difficult to actually earn a living wage when you're an adjunct because the pay scales for different classes, uh, and literally by class, I just mean a course, like you're teaching, let's say, Intro to American History, um, the pay scales for teaching Intro to American History at, say, Emory are going to be different than they are at the University of Washington are going to be different than they are at Santa Monica Community College are going to be different than they are at Harvard. So for example, you could be making as little as $2,500 or $3,000 for teaching a full uh, semester of Intro to American History at one college where you could be uh, paid six to $7,000 teaching the same exact course at a different college. And, and this is what most professors in America are, are actually doing. They're actually adjunct. They're basically putting together piecework by teaching courses uh, at various universities, you know, driving around hours a day, um, developing different courses for different standards. Some places require this syllabus, some places require a different one or a textbook or whatever it may be. And these positions, as, as I just suggested, are not particularly well compensated and the majority of them uh, don't have benefits. So what, uh, just to put a fine point on it, you could say that the American university, uh, as it's increasingly corporatized over the past 35, 40, 45 years, has a essentially hollowed out its labor force, replacing full-time positions with benefits and a good salary with essentially not full-time, part-time positions with poor salary uh, and poor benefits. And, and I'll stop there, but that's sort of the general lay of the land. And the question is, what does that mean for, for workers, for graduate workers, for professorial workers? Um, and also, what does that mean for the future of what might one, uh, one might call uh, American knowledge? Well, in the article, you wrote an article that seems to have like touched off a bit of a conflagration in the historical profession. Uh, I, I, I 
I haven't seen, at least because most of the work that I do is journalism related. Usually, like, if there's an article that generates, like, you know, three, four, five responses, and you seem to have drawn some pretty sharp rebukes here, that was, like, that was an article that basically shat on a lot of different people, or at least, like, on their, on their rug. Like, you, you, you really... It would have ticked some people off and i don't have you know enough experience within uh like how these squabbles work out in academia because frankly i try to stay away from politics and drama as much as i can uh but i will say that i i i haven't seen an article like this that wasn't deeply controversial in the journalism world to get that many responses so one thing that you said in, in uh your article a moral stand on the profession where you talk about the fact that, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who are in PhD programs for history, specifically is what you talked about here, that it, it seems like you're making out don't have really a snowball's chance in hell of actually making it into full-time work in academia. Is that an unfair way to characterize it or... No, I think I think that's right. I think that the, the majority, uh, I mean, the data is pretty bad on, on this, to be frank. But uh, yes. anecdotally, and, and from, you know, the, the polls that were taken online by people like Aaron Bartram for Contingent Magazine, it seems pretty clear that the majority of people who receive PhDs in history do not find stable employment as tenured track or, or, or professors in academia. So then the question is, what do we do next? And what I'd argued along with Mike Brennis in this article is that the American Historical Association, who sort of sort of the umbrella organization of American historians needs to stop um, acting like, uh, well, I don't think they act very much, but needs to basically transform into a, a semi-organizing force to basically build solidarity between tenure track and uh, adjunct faculty in order to actually challenge the uh, immiseration and corporatization and uh, adjunctification um, of academic life. And I'm just going to say one brief thing, uh, because then we could, we could actually, this might be you know controversial amongst uh, us and people feel, feel free to disagree, of course. But but basically what the American Historical Association has done and what the history profession has done as a whole is embraced what's called um, alt-ac or alternative to academia careers or non-academic careers with the idea being that the, the major professional organizations are going to devote their resources to trying to connect um, people with history PhDs to other spheres, you know, to museums, to archives, to government, to public work, whatever it may be. And what uh, myself and Michael argued in this article was that that was actually a distraction uh, that that what that actually does is um, elude responsibility for the adjunctification of the profession, and our major professional organizations should be providing or at least fighting for uh, tenure track jobs because we're all trained as researchers and teachers. We're not trained as you know uh, museum uh, uh, curators or archivists. And in fact, to simply assume that uh, history PhD is going to be able to transfer easily into any of those professions is pretty insulting to people who are actually trained in those fields. For one and two, uh, it assumes that those jobs actually exist. And much like the uh, full-time stable tenure track employment in history, there's not that many archivist or curator jobs as well. So we argued that the AHA, the American Historical uh, Association, needs to focus much more on defending what we're actually uh, trained to do. One thing that's interesting about what you just said about this idea that you as a historian can just go and pop in and do what a teacher or a curator does as if that doesn't have its own unique set of skills, how it's an insult to those professions. One thing I find interesting is that the same thing happens to historians themselves. Like people will hire someone like Ron Chernow, who's like just an author, be the quote unquote historian on a play like Hamilton. Then when you tell people the reason Hamilton is not that good is because Chernow is not an actual historian. He's not trained in it. He's just an author who has his interest in history. But there are things that trained historians can do that a lot of people don't realize. This is his own unique skill. But people treat 
train historians as themselves as the job is something that other people can just jump into. And I feel like in general with non-STEM jobs, people just treat all of it like, hey, if, it's, if it doesn't involve like STEM or math, all these kind of quote unquote soft things can be done by anybody. A writer can do this. You can be a writer, such and such. And as such, I think even the dilemma you're talking about in history and academia applies to actually a lot of quote unquote soft fields where they're all, what was the term you used for it, Daniel, for like? alt Yeah. No, no, the, the, the term for, is it, do you say creative economy or? Oh yeah. Before, before we were talking about sort of how, uh, Creative economies in general, creative professions have been incredibly hollowed out. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things that thought would be interesting throughout this conversation, and Andre, you have experience with stuff like this, not just in being in school for history, but also in in journalism, how this is kind of happening everywhere. You know, you have all act, but you also have freelancing. And it's it's similar in its own way. This is for people who think, oh, I don't care about history. You know, I'm going to check out. This applies to a lot of things. No, it's absolutely true in the sense that, uh, like, there is a degree of interchangeability uh, for subject matter that's, like, expected, if not uh, pushed on some journalists. Like, for example, you know, some of the journalists that I've seen uh, doing commentary on for, uh, to give an example, the uh, the, the Bolivian crisis or the coup, if you want to call it that. Um, I certainly call it that. But, uh, you know, I've, I've seen journalists swing in that just don't have that background but that's almost encouraged because it's almost like one is as good as another and i guess in the uh, you know the creative fields that you're referring to daniel it's it's almost expected that if you have a you know even like a tangential background in in this in the field you can be slotted in alongside somebody else who has expertise in that field and the two of you are on even ground yeah um <clears throat> and i think that i i think that's right and i think there's there's a lot to what um t just said um one about the sort of privileging of quantitative knowledge as quote unquote real knowledge is a very you know a modern american phenomenon it, it actually used to be the other way and and so we could talk about we could talk about that and also you know with with uh, chernov and the uh, hamilton example i think one of the reasons that people like like him or, or sort of the other founding fathers chic that that actually um sells best is because you know Professional historians essentially view American history not totally, but for you know, pretty for the most part, uh, from one uh, as it being a story of one misery to another, from indigenous genocide to slavery to uh, the variety of you know inequities produced by modern American capitalism. So I think uh, there's a large reason where, why historians are ignored on, on public stages like that. People view you. People view you guys as killjoys. <laughs> yeah, or telling the truth, whatever it may be. Uh, and actually, George Will attacked the piece we're talking about. You know, seventy-eight-year-old conservative columnist George Will in the Washington Post attacked attacked me personally in the in the Wapo a few days ago, essentially making that exact point, uh, claiming that you know if historians taught the American history in a more joyful manner or quote unquote taught what people actually wanted to read, then we wouldn't be dying. But I just want to emphasize, and I think Courtney might be able to speak to this better than I can. But I want to emphasize that there's actually um, a lot of history classes being taught in this country, in, in the U.S., and I'm probably also on train Canada, uh, but they're taught by underpaid people. So it's not like there's not a quote-unquote demand for history. It's just the conditions of historical scholarship and of historical work have been terrible. And then the question is, what comes next? And I think what the work Courtney's doing for the Emory Union is a, is a good way to you know think about what we, we might be able to do uh, on a larger scale. 
Well, I saw the uh, the um, article that uh, George Will wrote, and he cross-referenced a couple of pieces. But what do you? I mean, he did what a lot of people who have just like this smug disdain for the liberal art, liberal arts do. This makes you say, yeah, you know, you liberal arts and humanities people with your safe spaces and your trigger warnings and all this other like uh, fluffy snowflake bullshit. You know, that's the reason why your uh, you know your faculties are getting less funding. That's why you're getting less enrollments, and that's why you're shrinking and you can't get jobs. And that's 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 like pretty endemic uh to the sort of like the stemification of higher learning where people from the outside assume that the only purpose of university is to is to train like b-school majors and stem majors and liberal arts and humanities is just sort of like you know fluff that the universities throw in uh for people that haven't been able to find themselves is that kind of or like to help you write a professional email is uh... (laughs) yeah pretty much sorry Cordy, go ahead no i think like uh the WAPO article was like just amazing, um, mostly because he says something similar to what we also read in Grossman and what you'll see pretty much in everyone's response to why we shouldn't um, stand up for adjunct and graduate laborers is because we need to be realistic about what's going to like what's possible um, in the current I don't know, you know, institutional, like what we have money for basically is what they're trying to say to you. They're like, there's an over demand. I think that's what he says in the WAPO article. He's like, we're making or not over demand the opposite. We're making too many historians um, and there's just not the demand, but like eventually, you know, whatever forces may be are going to like figure this out. Um, We don't need to worry about this right now. In the meantime, let's be realistic and let's um, get people outside of the professoriate. Um, So like Emory, for instance, um, and I think this is pretty much at every university now, uh, there are these programs um, at Emory, it's called Pathways Beyond the Professorate. There's also a like Mellon Initiatives, which I went to a meeting with our Dean of Students, um, and this is kind of like representative of how I've experienced faculty in general and their response to standing up for graduate and adjunct labor. They're talking about the Mellon Initiatives. They're so stoked. This is going to like help train graduate students to like know how to make a I don't know, spreadsheet, they're gonna get that that money there. And I said, you know, I totally hear you guys. Like, yes, like um, ob- obviously we should respect and encourage people who want to leave the institution to, you know, go pursue careers elsewhere. But it seems like you do have a real responsibility to put your funding where your graduate students are, which is develop them and, and protect them and, or like uh, at least like fund them enough that they are able to write the best dissertations that they can and are able to like go and then get a job, right? So there was my, all of my professors wrote like, their dissertation like took like 10 years or whatever. Anyways, mm-hmm. her response was, um, well, here's the, th- oh, here's the thing. Like if we, you know, kind of put our money into the graduate students we have now, uh, and this is what they'll always say, then we need to take in less graduate students. And that means that tenure track faculty are going to be angry because they don't have like students coming in and that like hurts their prestige or something. Um, so this is the kind of like roundabout boss arguments that you're going to hear again and again about why we can't pay people a living wage. Right. And it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the fact that I think as a profession, um, what, what I argued, we, we recently were on a panel. Um, <clears throat> sorry about that. That made no sense. I was recently on a panel with someone who had responded uh, to my article by, by uh, essentially arguing against it. And I, this, this is what you'll, you'll, you'll hear constantly. And I think Courtney's right. And, and I think the argument is that the profession as a whole needs to have its consciousness change where we need to center basically the least secure and the most precarious among us. And right now, as Courtney suggested, I think that this sort of 
central figure in the imagination of academia is a tenured professor, right? Uh, and usually, the, you know, the older white male professor who who uh, encompasses, as far as I'm aware, most of the tenured class, at, at, at least in history. But the whole thing is that we need to center the people who have the fewest amount of resources. It's such, to me, a diseased way of viewing the world that you would possibly not pay people. Yeah, that you would possibly not pay people now so that, you know, the, the tenured professors get mad that they're not reproducing themselves because one, it doesn't make, obviously that's a moral issue uh, and that it's ridiculous on its face. But even beyond that, they're accepting students who under current conditions are not going to get jobs and therefore they're not even reproducing themselves anyway. So it's really about not wanting to do things like grade papers. And of course, there I think it's important to emphasize that a lot of this conversation centers on rich private universities like Harvard or Emory or where I went to school, uh, Duke. But I think this is actually true across the board and at public universities as well. So this is really an endemic problem for the research university. Well, in your in your article, uh, there's a couple of things that I wanted to touch on. Uh, the first is, it's almost like, when you say that Altac is not the answer, I, I'm thinking of like uh, somebody, for example, who uh, who goes to uh, to business school or who goes to engineering school. So when you, when you graduate from business school, you would reasonably expect that you're going to get a job, you know, probably working in the financial sector. You know, if you go to engineering school, you're most likely going to get a job with, say, like an engineering mining firm or something to that, something to that effect. But, you know, according to the AHA, 40%, of, so 40, only 47% of PhD graduates are on that tenure track and the rest end up going into other lines, lines of work. You also did point to the uh, job postings uh, and the interview practice, et cetera, saying that the AHA doesn't really provide any oversight and doesn't really provide any accountability in terms of what kind of jobs get offered to historians. So uh, you had an example here in 2010, East Tennessee State University put up an advertisement for a job in which the winning candidate would teach six courses a year for $24,000 plus benefits. Right. Yeah, that's actually the average um, amount that you're going to see adjuncts making. So yeah, I think it's the same in art history, history, whatever, a lot of these humanities, it's about 50% chance that you're going to get a tenure track job. And you go, if you don't get that tenure track job and you pursue uh, an adjunct, you know, try and make make up um, money working adjunct jobs, uh, you're going to make a on average, between twenty and twenty-five thousand dollars a year. Um, and right, and, and yeah, no, it's it's very little. And I think that I, I think I just want to emphasize for people who are listening who are like, oh, six courses a year—that doesn't sound like that much. You know, that's actually not bad. Yeah, but I was going to ask you, what kind of work goes into six courses a year? Right. So it's actually an incredible amount of work in terms of class preparation. Uh, So it's not just like literally being in a class and teaching. It's class preparation. It's grading. It's all of those issues. But beyond that, I think that we want to emphasize that the purpose of historical training is to produce new research and knowledge about the world. Um, And I think that's also really important in that like it's kind of the marker of what type of society one is or wants to be, whether one provides a uh, political economic support for someone to do things like, you know, read about the past and develop new knowledge about the past. And so it's interesting that in this era of Trump and people are constantly making historical analogies and blah, 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 there's all this Hamilton crap with people, you know, you know, these 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 semi pseudo historical popular entertainments. Um, but people or as a society, we, we don't seem to value the actual production of historical scholarship. So uh, think about when all of these PhDs in history are actually not getting full time jobs, we're actually losing an enormous amount of historical knowledge, an enormous amount of accrued historical knowledge, people who are going to transform our understanding of World War One or transform our understanding of the political economy of capitalism or, or really reveal what happened, uh, how did indigenous genocide play out, et cetera, et cetera. 
So we're actually losing all of this knowledge as a society and that so many people don't seem um, to really care. So I also want to emphasize that there's um, a, a cultural immiseration happening when people aren't provided with the employment that allows them to do the research um, for which they're trained. And that, that's actually, you know, sort of a, a really big cultural loss that I think it's important to underline. I'm going to take this to like, a really weird place right <laughs> and it's gonna be like off where we're going but you really struck me with that um no one cares can you say that again no one cares about the formation of knowledge or, or can you say that again do you remember what you said yeah it's just no one cares about the production of new knowledge about the world but you know what's interesting about that i i, I only not agree i don't think anybody even cares about the preservation of the old old knowledge. history yeah 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 <laughs> yeah and what you said just made me think about our recent episode we we're talking about harriet uh, the movie. Oh and God! Here we go. <laughs> the movie is just very willy nilly with the history, but I don't even want to talk about the movie so much as the reaction around it. What was interesting is a lot of these people were defending the movie. What they were taking for granted really disturbed me. Like people were just saying all historical movies make things up, and it's like even if that's true, why do you act like it has to be that way? Like there's just that's how it has to be. And then a lot of people were saying, "Oh well, it's not a documentary," and it's like, well. Even if it's not a documentary, it's not fiction either, you know? But this is kind of a weird thing where people don't really care about the categories of documentary or biopic or historical fiction. Everything is kind of flattened into the same thing, which is a Marvel movie. You know, at the end of the day, like, is it entertaining? Is it? And, and people were even defending it like that. People were like, well, yeah, that wasn't true. But what do you expect them to do? It's going to be boring otherwise. And there were like actual like journalists and academics saying that like, you have to understand movies have to be entertaining. And it's like, no, you can be informative and be entertaining or God forbid you're not entertained for 15 minutes. It's not the end of the world. But it made me kind of realize that jobs, roles, things are really don't matter. Like Harriet and Black Panther are for all effects, the same movie with the same goal and even the creative harriet said that she's like she was acting like her competition was harry potter and wonder not harry potter <laughs> black panther she was yeah. acting like it was black panther and wonder woman she was yeah. like you know black panther really inspired us and plus people were really into movies like wonder woman and the minute realized this is a great place for harriet like wait a minute you just fucking named a black superhero movie and a woman superhero movie and then used as a justification for a biopic and they're not the same thing like one is history it's not I mean, I guess not even really a question, more as a rant, but I, it, no, I think said, that's, it, it really resonated with you. No, I think that's right in the sense that, uh, I mean, sort of two things happening here, T, is that, you know, the superhero genre is exercising a type of hegemony over the entire movie industry where, you know, producers are seeing that that's what people want to go see. So you're seeing genre bleed, but seeing that blended to biopic not only is a sort of like a downside of the superhero genre but it's also a downside of there not being a strong enough historical backing such that uh there's someone that could sort of step in and defend at least like the integrity of the biopic to say okay well hang on a second that's nice and everything but this is what this person's actual history was like and we should stay that course um but you're even seeing that in terms of like you know the uh, books that people are writing now and the way that people are or the way that uh, history is being taught is that it's it's done sensationalist and oh my god kenny should be here it's done through a, a presentist lens <laughs> yeah, present <laughs> exactly but but it's like if if you're living in a world where black panther is is black history and harriet is superhero fiction then what does it really matter how historians are treated like like it does, does it really matter like uh if creators and curators and teachers can be replaced by historians 
Historians can be replaced by a Marvel writer. Ta-Nehisi Coates can technically do a little bit of both. So, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates can teach your class because he's a writer and he can write history because he's a writer and like no roles that kind of mean anything anymore. And how do you sell people on the importance of a historian in general, much less historians being treated well. Well, I or think ac academia, yeah. I think like what you're. Po I don't know anything about Harriet or the, um, really, but I think what you're pointing to is so interesting because that treatment of historians is actually happening in our institutions, right? So we're treating historians as replaceable. Their knowledge can easily be substituted for someone else's. People are working on non-renewable contracts. So this like huge adjunct pool, I think it's about 70% professors in higher ed are considered, you know, immediately replaceable. So if our own institutions kind of no, I think that's right. I mean, if the university isn't going to protect historians, if, if we historians aren't going to protect ourselves, and as you guys saw in the responses to my piece, we're, we're clearly not going to protect ourselves. How can we expect other institutions of society to do that? And T, I think you're getting at what you said. There's a lot going on with what you said. First of all, capitalism, corporate capitalism is never going to produce complex stories about the world. So I think this gets to questions about who funds art and how art is funded and the necessity of some sort of public financing of art so people don't do lowest common denominator stuff like i haven't seen harriet but it sounds like it like it wasn't too good or any of the marvel movies but but, but you know the problem with that is you're right that's capitalism doing what capitalism does but the disturbing part is the historians and the academics should have been the ones holding capitalism's feet to the fire and uh, doing that balance but instead you just felt like all the actual historians the people who should have been madder than regular joes like me they were the ones defending <laughs> the movie the most and you could tell it's because they want jobs they want yeah could you name names on the next yeah, well oh, oh, Do you know, who, who are you referring to that I, i'd get a better sense oh boy you better you better kick me off this podcast and go ahead and do that <laughs> to you. yeah yeah I, actually let's give a disclaimer the one i'm about to say did not reflect <laughs> views of the people who still need jobs in this industry <laughs> they're just uh bystanders but um, I, I was actually preparing a show just on this to name names. So I actually have notes, but I, I don't have them in front of me. So I'm okay. going off of the institution. So a lot of them have been from Rutgers. A lot of Rutgers academics. Or actually, I think I, I think I remember two. One is on that Professor Crunk woman, which again is part of that flattening out of the unserious and the serious. Like you're a professor. Why is your code name Professor Crunk? That's almost like a superhero. It's almost like a superhero name. Like, oh, oh, what? Crunk is gonna be dated. It's already dated. Crunk is the Little John era. Like, like it's it's already that itself is history. But she was one of the biggest. She was one of the biggest cheerleaders of the movie and whatever. And what was interesting was regular people were like making fun of her. Like, what are you talking about? And it's like, wait, she's a historian. She's the one who should be chiding the regular people who take history more seriously. The regular people shouldn't be chiding the historian to take this more seriously, but she also does a lot of TV panels, does a yeah. lot of things, and she's clearly trying to break into um, yeah. entertainment and media. And it's a cool flattening effect because, you know, if Black Panther is Harriet and Harriet is Black Panther and it's all the same, then being a historian clears the way for you to write a screenplay next time. Maybe she wants to do a screenplay next time. Like, like yeah. I, I feel like these historians are more reading like Save the Cat or Sid Field's story than they're those screenwriting guru things and reading uh, history. But there's also someone from Rutgers who seems to have written a, Harri a Harriet book and she seems to be promoting the movie, but the movie people seem to be promoting her. I saw these ads for like workshops or things that she was doing that seemed to be 
promoted as well this is nothing thing they're doing right black panther right black panther had this movie marvel did black panther whatever ta-nehisi coates both writes black panther but is also a non-historian who writes about history right so they had this kind of panel but the panel looks and the, you know these panels are like uh you know those advertorials like when you read a magazine and something looks like an uh, article but then when you look at it you're like wait a minute this is actually an ad this is a fine print this is not an article like this is an ad you know but they do it to almost camouflage so you don't think it's an ad it, they almost try to trick you into reading an ad by disguising it as an article this was like a marketing movie event disguised as an academic panel so they had like a at the apollo this event talking about like black panther and the history of black resistance or something like that and ta-nehisi coast was chairing it chadwick boltzmann was there and as i was like thinking like is this a history panel or is this a a movie junket event but either way there's not a there's not a historian there there's not a screenwriter there you know um everything's interchangeable nothing matters it's all a big farce and this harriet thing that i saw being promoted seemed to be something similar it was technically about celebrating Harriet, and they had this author from Rutgers there. But you could tell that it was really something sponsored or made, it seemed to be, by the movie studio pushing Harriet. And they were disguising it as a panel and promoting it, but really they wanted to get the historians to feed more people into the movie seats. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm like, you can see why these people don't care about the jobs of the people coming up, because they're too busy trying to secure another bag, and a lot of it doesn't even have to do with history in, in and of itself so of course these historians aren't going to be worried about this debate that you're having daniel with the aha because a lot of these people they're trying to get on cnn and maybe do the next marvel movie yeah i think that's right and i think there's also just flat out differences of political ideology i would imagine that the majority of people who associate with things like hamilton or harriet consider themselves liberal americans and they want to promote like a liberal nationalist narrative to sort of reclaim the nation from trump and that's just something you know as a lefty that i'm going to fundamentally disagree with so i think there's there's a lot of you know political things happening here that we need uh that we also need to be aware of and i imagine that's what's going on with, with the uh, i don't actually know who, who um, professor crunk is or or her, her, his Twitter handle, um, but it just seems like there, there's a difference of, of, of political ideology there. And th and that's also critical because I think from my sense, and Courtney and, and Andre, you could tell me if, if you think this is wrong, it seems like there's also a bit of a generational difference in how people understand, you know, the social role, the historian uh, and the job and the, and the job market. And, and in general, younger people are, uh, are, are more likely to be left wing or more likely to view the historian as a critic, as opposed to someone who's going to reaffirm a particular national uh, narrative and also younger historians who have experienced the indignities of the job market are much more likely to be aware of that. But I don't know, that seems to be my own experience, but I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with that. Well, I would say like, okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say that history is one of the more, like traditionally has been one of the more conservative academic pursuits, like one of the more conservative faculties. Depends when. I mean, traditionally it was really critical in the 19th century to creating the very idea of an American nation, but also historians like William Appleman Williams and Gabriel Coco and John Hope Franklin were really lefty in the 60s and the 70s. But I would say generally it's epistemologically pretty conservative because we rely on documents and that has tended to promote sort of what I would say like a center leftism as sort of the center of the a center liberalism as sort of the center of the discipline. Well, I mean, and now there's, you know, sort of like a, a gradual opening up, right? So there's different types of histories that are now becoming acceptable, for example, like, you know, oral, oral stories and so forth. So it's like there's, it's almost like there's like new cohorts coming in um, that are like bringing their own experiences and flavor to the profession, which is nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, um, 
like bringing a god kenny's word again here bringing a, a kind of presentism but also like bringing a very specific kind of energy to it that is very like very highly coalesced with this like uh spectacle based sort of capitalist economy right i was thinking about like the uh the book that T was referring to earlier um but also just like you know wanting to be involved with uh you know uh, movie releases wanting to be involved with like Hollywood comic books and so forth like that's something that I hadn't really seen before unless maybe I missed it no I think I think that's right and then I think that that relates again to capitalism sort of this idea of personal brand building which you know I mean I I'm definitely guilty of that I think anyone who's like fancies themselves a public figure is guilty of that but uh, there's degrees uh, of what one is able to commit oneself to and how much one is willing to betray uh, their own principles with regards to that well I mean to, okay so back to the article then is um, I, I found that there was a, a, a weird kind of response to it right so uh, in your in your piece I didn't see anything about union organizing I think you like I saw you mention you know the AHA's responsibility for or new graduates, uh, you know, new or new PhD uh, uh, graduates, and so on. But in one of the responses that you got, uh, and this one was from Allison Miller, uh, the the criticism of your piece was, yeah, but we can't unionize. But I don't remember seeing unionizing anywhere in your original criticism there. Yeah, basically, I said that if there was one, that would be good. Uh, yeah, I de we definitely didn't say the AHA should become a union. <laughs> I mean, we just we just didn't say that. Uh, but we did say it should basically facilitate solid. Solidarity. Um, so it was odd. I, I believe Allison is the editor of the AHA's magazine. Um, so uh, even though the article says that, you know, it's her own personal opinion, she's associated with the organization as a whole. But I think the organization just basically wanted to essentially, it said two things. It's like, whoa, hold on. We're not labor, we're bosses. Uh, and then it also said, we're also <laughs> like not powerful. Um, so it was sort of a strange uh, response in terms of it admitting its own impotence. But again, just to go back to what T was saying, if our major professional organization isn't going to defend the value of historical research. How could we expect any uh, historians to, 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 you know, respect themselves, frankly, you know, to not associate with Hollywood or whatever the case may be? Yeah, and have outsiders respected. If you're yourself aren't respecting it, I, I had a question, right? And it relates to what I said about that little circus around Harriet, but also relates to your article. And what I was wondering, right, is you have the AHA on one side of this, and then you have you guys on the other side, but then... I was wondering about what the actual everyday concerns the department is, because I, I don't really understand a lot of this world, the funding, the concerns. I was just going to get there. Yeah, was going to be my next question. Is that, yeah, is yeah, there? The, the publisher, yeah. oh, wait, wait, I just want to ask this real quick. No, go ahead, um, go ahead. When I was looking, I'm trying to put together the politics as an outsider, and maybe you three can help me understand this, right? But what I had noticed was that this person that was getting put on these panels, and she had this new book about Harriet, and it was called She Came to Slay. And it seemed to be like that similar vein of, you know, notorious RBG, try to find some way mm -hmm. to make it sound entertaining and modern. You know, this this one professor is called Professor Crunk. You call Ruth Bader, Ruth Bader Ginsburg notorious RBG. So it's a history book about Harriet, but- Oh, that wasn't, that wasn't her that wrote that. Oh, oh no, no, I, I know. Oh, I'm, I'm, okay, I'm getting, sorry, I'm getting to that. No, yeah. it's fine. The The person who wrote it had a different name. Unfortunately, I'm forgetting her name. And can can you it's, remember? Check, check the chat. Check the chat. I dropped both of them in the chat for you. Oh, yeah. Erica Armstrong Dunbar wrote the book, She Came to Slay. And the name itself is meant to be evoke modern hip hop, whatever and stuff. But she's from Rutgers, right? Now, Brittany Cooper, his professor Crunk, I noticed was from Rutgers. Then I saw two or three of the other people who were vehemently defending this book, who were academics, were all from Rutgers. So then I, I got the impression, okay, something about about them getting that 
cosigned from the movie studio and these panels, it must be doing something for the whole Rutgers as an institution. And I was wondering, like, what is that? Is there a prestige to it? Like, what has this whole department seemingly rallying to celebrate this ahistoricism in defense of the movie? Well, I assume that they, like, want to stay sexy and relevant uh, to not lose their funding. But I have no idea why else you would act that way. I think there's, like, always the the looming threat that your department might be cut at any moment. Like, history doesn't really face that, but it could be cut substantially, right? Um, Yeah, sorry. Keep going. The reason I'm I'm asking is I'm wondering if whatever concern has them acting like so desperate you know do, do this is part of also the reason why they're not caring about fundamental problems with people up and coming like this would be some kind of weird concern with things that yeah I think I think I get what you're okay. So I think uh, the first thing to emphasize is that academic life, like the life of a scholar, is incredibly alienating. Um, so I think you're you're you don't see your colleagues that much. Uh, you see them at you know occasional meetings, very occasional meetings, and most of your work is either in the classroom where you're sort of declaiming to a, a, a students, or you're doing your own research or you're on your own. So I think a lot of what you're getting at T actually relates to the fact that people. This is a career that structurally fosters focusing on the individual self. So I think a lot of, you know, whether being associated, you know, personally associated with a cool movie and maybe this leads to other things and maybe you're bored with academia and want to become a screenwriter uh, or maybe you're, you know, you you see that there's a problem with the field, but, you know, you, as an individual, you can't really do that much. So you keep on accepting graduate students and you're not going to really want to grade 70 papers. So it, it works out for everyone and they, they should know what they want to do. They're coming in as graduate students. I think a lot of this uh, relates to the alienation of academic life in general, which is why I think, again, what, what Courtney's doing with unions is really important because it, the, these sorts of large social spaces are so rare in academia. It's not like a normal nine to five office job where you constantly see your colleagues. You actually very rarely see your colleagues. So there's no bonds of solidarity to really bring um, people together. And they, and then again, just to underline what Courtney said, I think people are really worried about funding. So I'm sure Rutgers thinks associating with a movie studio, there's no downsides as far as they can see it like big deal the harriet is inaccurate you know who cares at least more people know who harriet tubman is and uh, you know they might get some money out of it they might get some prestige so i think that actually explains a lot of what's going on i don't know andre corny if you disagree with that or if you don't find the profession alienating but to me it seems like one of the fundamental social facts that kind of permeates the the fact that historians aren't able to get it together to help the most precarious of us i thought that was so interesting that all of their responses too were about this change of culture when really you don't actually see one another very often, right? So everyone was like, look, we can't do anything about the structures that leave people in desperate poverty or, you know, working these crazy uh, class schedules, but we can treat each other more nicely. And it's like, well, the very structure of me making like $18,000 and you making $85,000 is the problem, right? And that I'm doing, you know, more work, whatever. Um, obviously we should treat each other nicely but that of course is not does not a culture change or whatever no absolutely not it uh i will say that um you know i'm only i'm only in my first year um as a master's student i it so far it is alienating like i i never really know how it is that i'm doing like i I hand in my work and i get you know like get good marks but i always kind of feel like i should be on campus more or i should be taking part in, in more events i should be seeing my colleagues but it's like you know you also have your life like i have you know a career i've got a family and everything else so i don't have time to always be on campus so you know if you're not around and keeping up with 
everything, yeah, it does kind of feel like you're kind of sliding behind. It is it is an incredibly alienating workplace. The school I go to is kind of unique in the sense that like, so there's a, you know, there's like a GA union, um, which is associated with uh, QP, the Canadian Union of Public Employees. And then the Graduate Students Association is its own, like it's its, its own association. And, you know, they, so basically like there's a, a strong union presence, um, at least at my university. But uh, I know, Courtney, you've been, you know, really pitching in that fight to build uh, a union network um, where, where one doesn't really exist to the extent that it that they do exist in Canada. And there's a bit of a different scenario here because, you know, we don't pay the kind of money that you pay for universities. So we don't go, you know, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars into debt to go to school. And then the second thing is, you know, when you actually do end up getting, let's say that you, you know, you get hired for a teaching position. There's a story about, uh, oh my gosh, there's this professor and I, her name was uh, Mary, oh, uh, Ma- Margaret Mary Voidko. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, she like she she died in her classroom, didn't she? In like in like abject poverty, she was like sleeping under her desk, and that's like that was really tragic. That was yeah, and that's a horror story that I don't think like I mean, granted, like adjunct professors do exist in Canada as well, and you know it is sort of the same sort of like piecemeal contract labor, but you don't have as wide variations in salary here as you do with the U.S. Like in Canada, generally, like there's a scale that you can expect to be paid as a professor like there's sort of like a, a range of, of of salary um where you know you're not going to be like flat out broke but in the u.s it's almost like you could be working you know at one university and be making say like 50 or sixty thousand a year and then across town somebody is doing the same kind of uh, teaching position you are and can be making easily two three times what you're making yeah I and just Court- a- i think courtney sent me that adjunct professor article did you send me that the one that yeah i'm sorry i cut you off daniel Oh, no, no, no. I just wanted to emphasize in that in within departments themselves, there's a lot of academic uh, striation. So someone in the same department could be making $250,000 while someone literally doing the exact same work in the same department could be making 80. And unsurprisingly, the people who make the most, it's, it's striated along uh, gender and racial lines. This is a word that gets overused so much, but it's overused mostly because people misuse it. But you use it and you, of course, use it correctly, but you bring up the word that hated this word has become a cliche from from misuse but it's totally right neoliberal neoliberalization uh the academy and the department and i think that's what we were seeing and also with these people trying to get on panels for these movies is everyone's trying to pull a ripcord and you know <laughs> parachute out of this plane that they see as they, they must like when i was watching them like these people must clearly see this plane as something about to crash they're all seeming to seem to find an escape route out of it or parachute so who has the time to worry about the people trying to get into the plane like like right. no one's trying to pull the plane up or put the fire out or make the plane fly straight again when half of the people are trying to um find a parachute to get out of it and maybe kind of appreciate what you guys must be kind of dealing with, but it's all neoliberalization, like the hyper individuality of everything, the market-based thing. Like the two, the two or three things we're talking about sound very different, but I think they all come from the same place, whether it's these people trying to get on Black Panther panels or consult for Harriet or these people in the university not caring about the students or trying to tell them to get al- alternative jobs or trying to sell, sell bootstrapperism to them. And even though this is a term that we kind of take for granted, very simple question. Can you explain the term neoliberaliz- neoliberalization? All right. For people who don't know what neoliberalism is. Sit back and relax. Go <laughs> off, Daniel. 
Oh, I'm going to... Well, I, I could explain, Neil. I don't know. How, how do you even begin? Yeah, yeah because, because we just kind of assume everyone knows what it means. But when I see five or six different people use it, yeah. it's kind of like morphing into something that, you know, just means sure. something I don't like. Well, yeah. can I ask a real... So, Courtney, can you I interrupt it. really quickly? Can I... I feel like we've been very inside baseball and it is like 55 minutes in. So like this may not be very helpful, but I felt like if you're going to get a sense for how, you know, and I don't know if I can give a definition, but I could get a, a sense for how he's, how Daniel might be using this word. Um, I could kind of explain the structure um, as it stands right now. So like how labor is structured in the university. So sorry, that's yeah. very late in, but right now there are, there are grads and adjuncts, right? And then there are of course like tenured professors, grads and adjuncts, typically on any given university campus or during the majority of the teaching. A really quick example would be like my, I think my ex-boyfriend, I don't think my ex-boyfriend, but my ex-boyfriend, I think he makes um, $17,000 a semester working seven courses a semester um, at three different campuses, but for one university. So that is considered full time. um, But of course, like $17,000 is going to come out to 34. It's not all about money though. The, The neoliberalism comes, right, is if 50% of us are going to end up on this uh, non-tenure track, right? Um, we're you know, teaching seven classes or whatever. Uh, but our professors are telling us, look, if you just write the best dissertation, if you just put your like <laughs> nose to the grindstone or whatever that freaking phrase is, um, if you just work really hard, you're definitely going to make it like me. And it's ignoring, right? It's a willful um, avoidance of the responsibility of you know even noticing or, or caring that 50% of... Um, their students may or may not live in poverty, but also that 70% of the people on their campuses don't have, you know, a contract. Okay, and and where I think the neoliberal turn is, right, where like a kind of individualism or like a kind of sickness, I would say, um, <laughs> is when you ask, right, professors or whatever to kind of stand up for a mass exploitation on their campuses, you always get kind of this be realistic, okay, I'll be nicer answer. And it's a willful, you know, or, you know, the AHA can't be a union. Um, Why are you asking us to strike? You know, this isn't our responsibility. I read, I was watching a CUNY TV show and someone said, look, no one asked you to be, you know, an adjunct professor, right? So these, it's a, it's a willful turnaround. Another word that pops up a lot is austerity too, right? Definitely. Yeah. So I think that that's kind of like giving you the sense of, or like the incremental change, right? That's like what Miller's saying. She's like, look, um, we didn't make these decisions. It's not our responsibility moving on. Um, And I think what, oh, sorry, the big part actually is that it protects them believing, right, that um, they deserve this more than someone else does, right? So there's a, a a true, so like a true belief in the meritocracy and holding on to an obsession with like an institutional past that they think exists, right? When everyone did get that that good job and you did it from your hard work. Everything you're saying applies to like media and journalism too. Like you know, freelance and hey, now not just freelance, write for free for write for exposure. That's the big thing. Uh, Yasmin Nier, friend friend and guest of the show, talks talks about that a lot. Her hard stance against writing for free or whatever. And in addition to neoliberalism, Daniel, can you also define austerity? I think that appears in the, in it too. And it tends to come up often with the word neoliberalism. And Courtney kind of 
hinted toward that as well. Sure. Uh, I, I'll, I'll try to do both of those things. So um, I, I think it's important with, with neoliberalism. It's essentially referring to liberalism, of course, not in terms of a modern political ideology, like a Democrat is a liberal or whatever, Elizabeth Warren is a liberal, but it's referring to the original meaning of the term in the 19th century sense, which is, you know, 19th century liberal, uh, liberalism, which is the idea that uh, the focus should be on the individual and the focus should be on, on freeing the individual from uh, government and state strictures. So you have things like an emphasis on laissez-faire ideology, individual achievement, meritocracy, things along these lines. And this is generally what is meant by uh, neoliberal, the neo just being new and the liberal just being night as in, in the sense of 19th century liberalism in, this, in the idea that like Frederick Hayek or Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, famous libertarian philosophers, were actually quote unquote liberals, or you might hear this referred to as classical liberalism. If you uh, decide to hang out with libertarians, that this is what they mean by that. And neoliberalism is essentially a new form uh, of classical liberalism that began um, really percolating intellectually in the 1940s as one of the responses to fascism and communism. The idea was that fascism and communism are bad, but are obviously because of their racist ideologies in terms of fascism and the totalitarian senses of communism, but they're bad because of uh, the notion that they restrict the freedom of the individual. So people like Friedrich Hayek were arguing that you really need to emphasize this individualism. And this began to become popular in the United States in the 1970s as the New Deal coalition or the New Deal structure uh, began to collapse as a result of a loss of jobs, deindustrialization in, in the American center, uh, you know, the so-called Rust Belt, etc. And one of the responses to the failure of the Keynesian state, you know, the, 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 the stoking of demand consumer state was this neoliberal turn. And this was a, a really a, a revolution in how Americans understood uh, their 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 position in society. And the idea was that you needed to free uh, institutions and people from government regulations. And once you freed people from government regulations and focused on, you know, the pursuit of profit, running everything like a business, you'll be able to achieve the greatest society. And, th and this was an idea that began to permeate the university, particularly in the 1980s, as boards of trustees, which were traditionally, you know, local leaders, politicians, etc., began to be replaced with, with uh, basically business leaders began to be put on the boards of trustees of universities. And business leaders, unsurprisingly, what did they emphasize? They emphasized efficiency and they emphasized profit. The only problem is the very pursuit of knowledge is an inefficient and non-profit bearing thing, right? You don't pursue knowledge. You don't learn about Harriet Tubman in order to make money, or at least traditionally, you don't learn about Harriet Tubman in order to make money, but, but you didn't. learn about it to pursue knowledge, right? And so what you have is a neoliberal ideology has begun to permeate the university, was which is an essentially in some significant form a pre-modern structure, right? Like how many other professions are based on mentor-mentee relationships, right? You know, plumbers, you know, some sort of trades, but the majority of our economy has been professionalized. So you have this neoliberal ideology, which, you know, again, stresses efficiency, it, it stresses uh, all of these things being overlaid on the universities. So you have the degradation of knowledge itself with the promotion of cost-saving measures like adjunctification. So that's what I'm referring to when I refer to neoliberalism in this context. And very briefly, austerity is just the idea that universities claim that they don't have the money to pay for adjuncts. But, you know, a 
lot of them do have the money to pay for things like new gyms and things along those lines. So you have a consumer-centered culture becoming the culture of the university when the university as a structure is not meant to, uh, is not designed to promote that culture. Sorry about that rant. <laughs> oh, no, I mean... No, that's, yeah, that's really, that's really yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So one last thing in submission actually can i can i ask a tease okay if i ask a couple of questions because the age because the aha site has a couple of things that i found really interesting that kind of dovetails with what you were saying uh daniel is okay one is uh there have like a like a bubble visualization of like outliers you know jobs that uh historians end up getting so like the largest sort of uh bubble in the visualization is historians but then there's also lawyers general operations managers post-secondary administrators uh secondary school teachers etc etc so so these are obviously like jobs outside of like the profession of being an historian um but then there was uh, another report um which was every historian counts where it says you know when you earned your degree is important so for people it says here anyone that graduated after 2008 was most likely to be off the tenure track so about 55 percent of the 2004 to 2008 cohort were on the tenure track, um, and twelve percent were on the non-tenure track. But for those who were on, who got their degrees from two thousand nine to two thousand thirteen, only forty-six percent were on the tenure track, and about twenty were non-tenure track. So I guess the question is like, like what can uh, let's say that somebody you know enrolls in the a uh, a PhD program now, you know what what exactly are they looking forward to? Uh, I mean, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, I could answer, and then Courtney could. I'll answer this quickly. I think, like, if you're enrolling in a PhD program, you cannot expect to get a tenure track job. This is why I think it's a very risky decision uh, to do it unless you're rich. But I'm, that's very problematic because then history will become what it was in the 19th century, which is basically, you know, for for rich for rich guys to, yeah, to spend their time there. Yeah, rich. Yeah. yeah. But Courtney, you should take it away here. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I guess I, I, I always joke um, when people ask me about what I'm going to do afterwards. I go, well, I didn't really realize I was supposed to be rich to be an art historian. Although I guess that makes a little bit of sense, like art history. I think what's difficult when you enter graduate school, if you're going to pursue a PhD, right, is you have to pretend as if you're going to get that um, PhD at the end and at the same time um, be pursuing, you know, a hundred different careers, right? So as I'm going through graduate school, my um, advisors are saying, you know, you can do this, like you just have to write the best dissertation possible. And at the same time, everyone else I know who's outside of the professoriate is saying, you need to get into digital humanities. Uh, do you like, how is your CV? Are you publishing? Have you worked other kinds of jobs? And I'm like, no, I have not. Because the only training that I get, even, you know, in digital humanities, right? That's a professor type job. So it's not great. This is where I will plug the union though. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons that graduate workers are unionizing and that unionization effort is under threat, which I'll get to in a second. But I think, you know, one of the most important and one of the most pressing is, you know, we need to unionize from top to bottom uh, to get rid of top to bottom, hopefully, the university in order to kind of like have to make sure that this uh, pattern doesn't keep repeating itself, right? So if, you know, graduate students, um, adjuncts, tenure track faculty could actually have a say in how the university was run, we may not have uh, this pattern continually repeating itself. So with uh, your, sorry, uh, just one more question for Courtney is, you know, with your uh, your, your drive to, um, you know, if not unionize, then at least like pull together labor solidarity among graduate students, among PhDs, like what what is the best case scenario? Like what is the outcome you're really hoping for? Well, it's a, a really hard question to answer right now since the NLRB um, is introducing a rule that will 
you know, state uh, overturned a 2016 decision that said graduate students at private universities are workers. Now they're not going to be workers. I'm going to ask everyone right now to just Google NLRB graduate student comment writing and write a comment to the NLRB to hopefully slow down that decision. I guess like, you know, what we've seen at other universities, right, is, is getting a contract, right? Having your work acknowledged, uh, having uh, protections, for instance, uh, discrimination and harassment protections. That's kind of something that you know, graduate workers don't have. Um, I think if you Google, or if we, when we were in our preliminary stages of researching discrimination harassment procedures for graduate workers at Emory, we got a return to sender email for the, the kind of office we were supposed to reach out to and a deadline, which was just like amazing. But ultimately the policies just don't exist um, at places like Emory at least. And so graduate workers are pushing to, to have their own uh, work protected. Um, but I think most importantly, when you get when you talk about contracts, um, when you talk about visibility, you're asking like you can go to those Mellon Initiative meetings and say this isn't right. Like I don't want to be learning about uh, how to you know work at a nonprofit. I want to work in the professoriate, and we need to change this university and the university system more generally to reflect what I've been trained to do. Creating jobs. One of the things you said was about uh, personal branding, and I don't recall if you mentioned this in your definition of neoliberalism, Daniel, but if I understand correctly, because there's a guy called Lester Spence. Uh, he has this book about uh, how about neoliberalism too. He has two books about neoliberalism, neoliberalism in black politics and neoliberalism in uh, hip hop. And one of the things that he talks about as far as the definition of neoliberalism, which I think ties into what you guys were saying, is that one other aspect of neoliberalism is that you have to become a human brand. And Courtney touched on that. That's that's one of the things that, uh, you said your advisor said that, right? That, you know, about making yourself a brand? <laughs> is that the word that you use? I don't think that he would probably use those ling that language. Um, you didn't say he used it. You said, uh, I just think you used it. Like, like, oh, like you um, described what he wanted you to do and then you kind of summed it up as a brand. Right, and that's like, basically like what brand. we were talking about earlier, right? Is you, if you kind of, well, I think this is another false belief, right? Is if, you're, if you just have a sexy enough topic, um, then you'll also get, uh, you know, that job. So people are, are vying for the sexy, relevant topics so that they might get any attention from a hiring committee. And the people who are hired, like these uh, Professor Crunks and stuff, they're trying to find something even sexier to get out of the, the, the academy altogether. So it's like people trying to find something sexy to get into it, while the people in it are trying to find something even sexier than that to get us something even sexier as a profession. Yeah, which is totally. Yeah. <laughs> but it also just repeats the same meritocracy problems, which is like, oh, well, I just, you know, thought of the sexier topic. That's why I got this job. And, you know, people really do buy into that. And I'm, I'm, you know, there might be truth to it. But no, there isn't. I wanted to emphasize that it's total nonsense. It's That's absolute total nonsense. nonsense. Yeah, you're never going to know what the random search committee is going to want. And it depends so much on, you know, whether that person uh, had a good BM that day and ate a good lunch. You know, it's it's like totally fucking random. And so this I mean, this is this is what you see in like a lot of pre-modern societies. You know, people are trying to essentially use mystification to game a totally random lottery system. Right. With, with things like pick the sexiest topic and you'll be OK. It's total nonsense. The system is total chaos. The only reason I have a tenure track job is 100% luck. Over 300 people applied to my job. I mean, I'm a brilliant genius, but I'm not sure I'm better than 300 <laughs> other people. You know, it's total. Yeah, it's totally fucking random. And so I you know think what it reminds like, me of is a, is a cargo cult. Have you heard of a cargo yes, cult? Yes, of course. Yeah, it's a, yes, it's a, it's exactly that. T, do you want to take that one away? <laughs> A cargo cult, uh, I'll take it from Wikipedia, right? 
<laughs> a cargo cult is a belief system among members of a relatively underdeveloped society in which adherents practice superstitious rituals hoping to bring modern goods supplied by a more technologically advanced society. And where it comes from is the whole thing about how correlation is not uh, causation. Uh, these people right. called the Melanesians in the late 19th and early, early 20th centuries uh, used to see these these runways come and the runways would come with all these uh gifts and goodies and stuff like that so they started thinking that gifts and goodies were coming because of the runway so then they started making these rituals of building runways and they would think if we build a good enough runway then material wealth is going to appear in the form of western goods via western airplanes so they started thinking the runway caused the plane to come and the goods to come rather than someone bringing goods and flying a plane decided to build a runway. And I feel like that's what's ha happening with the sexiness thing, what Daniel calls a myst yeah. mystification to explain something totally unrelated. And I I'm sorry, I cut you off. You were going somewhere and I... Oh, no, no, I no. I, I think I think that's right. I mean, I just think human beings want order in their world. And this is an incredibly demoralizing, random process and frankly depressing and alienating. So it makes Damn, you total make it, sense. You make it almost sound like one of them like MLM <laughs> organizations where it's like, yeah, you know, if you just like, if you just call a few friends and just make sure that you, you, you stay on top of it and you <laughs> get your, yeah, exactly. You get your, uh, you get your, your, your 40 calls in per week and it's going to come, it's going to happen. So it's like the way that you're explaining, like, you know, uh, picking, uh, a good dissertation it's almost like like the team leader like revving <laughs> up the team for a, a bonus or a promotion that's just never going to arrive mm. and what's the mlm an mlm is a pyramid scheme so you're kind of saying that they're making it sound almost like a pyramid scheme it is it, 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 academia is a pyramid scheme and those who benefit like other areas of our economy are the ones who've already won it's it's very sad and depressing for the future of history summing up daniel's article is really all he's asking of the academy is to take the responsibility that I heard Daniel himself say, like, it is, it's not about who's sexiest, it's not about who wrote the best dissertation. It's about making sure that there are positions that are well-paying and reliable, right, for people by just making that acknowledgement um, that the, it really is a crapshoot. And what you hear in all of the responses is an inability just to make that, like, to have that acknowledgement or to, to acknowledge whatever, the state of affairs. And these are coming from people who have nothing at risk, right? It's a little bit different than the journalism in that way, right? Because, you know, tenure is like right. legit, like you have another thing to risk, except it's for... Amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so stable, you know, and yeah. like... It, sound, and then... it just sounds so good. <laughs> like, like when I first heard about tenure yeah. was... There's as nothing a kid, like that in journalism. Like even if you get a staff position, you could, your job could disappear next week. When I first, yeah, when I first went to college and I've heard what tenure was, I'm like, this is like real. Like, you know, I was a kid, I'm like, this is like actual like, real life. It's amazing. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And it's sad that people with the most security in our society can't fucking defend the most precarious people in their own goddamn profession. Hey, yeah, you, you make it sound yeah. almost like um, like Alec Baldwin from Glengarry Glenn Ross. <laughs> Always be closing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey. It's like the, the program director walks into the student lounge and says, put the copy down. <laughs> Copies for closers. The the, um, the, the hip-hop phrase that Lester Spence uses to describe like the personal branding part of neoliberalization, he says uh, the Jay-Z line, I'm not a businessman i'm a business, a business comma man, man. yeah <laughs> and courtney i hope you warmed up because you were just talking so because we're putting the ball in your court what i want to know is describe what you do and how it ties in 
what Daniel's talking about in his article and the ways in which what you do might actually sometimes be at odds with what Daniel I mean if that ever happened you know you know like uh like at your end of it because people understand okay the thought of unionized academics or whatever academic striking but you know academia is you know at least we understand the job but a lot of times when people hear students unionizing I mean we see it with the athletes in the in in the press people talking about hey why do athletes need to care about make, making money or whatever and stuff but with you guys no one even talks about regular students um <laughs> organizing unionizing so why do you say to play devil's advocate the person who says stuff like hey don't you guys just have a student government isn't that enough or aren't you guys there to study or you know what do you guys need to unionize for <laughs> why do you pay union dues like like what do you, what do you do courtney rawlings like, like, like what, what is this i love being called by a full name I mean, it's it's not always like a super easy discussion, but um, it's an incredibly urgent one, right? And, and like I said earlier, a really pressing one. And that's what I always highlight when I'm talking to someone about, you know, joining the union or something like that. What you want to say, or do you want me to explain what a graduate worker is? Is that what you're asking? Yes, explain, explain, explain it all. Explain like, you know, what you do, okay. why you do it. And the kind of misunderstandings that people have, like, you know, yeah. for example, I'm sure, I'm sure with almost any type of organizing, there's always... Whether it's a slave escape, whether it's a union, whether it's a strike, there's always some people who are like, we have a good thing, leave it alone. You're going to make it worse. <laughs> so I'm sure you guys have your own version of that. Oh my you God, know? yeah. Um, it's all, hard, all of it. disheartening. Yeah, so graduates, workers, you know, it really differs per department uh, across schools. But graduate workers tend to be teaching classes, be that their own classes. There's often TAs, teaching assistants. Um, and in the sciences, you have people working in labs, normally a typical nine to five job. You also have research assistants. Um, so I've worked as a research assistant on three different projects where I go to the archives, I write up reports, and I help someone kind of put together their book or digital project. And those are contingent on my getting paid, right? So if I, you know, just didn't show up to my TA sessions, it's very unlikely that I would continue in the graduate program because I'm not pulling my weight, right? I'm not doing what the invisible contract says I should be doing. And that's the work part, right? So there's of course time in the classroom and that's what people get really worried about. They're like, well, I also am in this classroom. I'm learning, whatever. It's definitely an old model. All that intellectual work, right, is being used immediately in the classroom, in the research room, in the lab. And so when I talk to other graduate students, I tend to say, if you can imagine this university working without your labor, then I guess it's not labor. But I really can imagine that. If graduate students stopped existing at a university, it would come to a halt. And so that's what I tend to highlight when it comes to like talking about their labor. I guess a, a question I have, and you know, this is from a, a, a relative newbie here. Is there almost, is, it almost feel like there's no point. Like, is there any point to pursue this? Because I've actually been sort of vacillating between whether I want to pursue to the PhD level and beyond, or if I should just say, you know what, that's it. I'm capping out right here. Maybe I'll just write books or something instead. Oh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> wow, that is that is a very bomb of a question that you just casually lobbed. Like, nothing. That was... I've been waiting to ask it this entire time, because there's like, you know, they're making it sound like, oh, damn, yeah. So there's nothing is ever going to work out for you. You're going to, like, grind yourself to dust getting this PhD. There are no jobs available. And the ones that are pay absolute trash. So don't get, like, it, it kind of sounds like there's not really much upside, but there's just, like, a very, very high downside. Uh, what I what I say is, like, listen, <laughs> if, if you're willing to sacrifice years of your life to pursue and become super knowledgeable about 
one really specific thing and that sounds like attractive to you, this is the only way to do it in this society. So that's what you actually ask yourself. Like if you love the guy from my first book about Hans Fire for some reason, if you want to really spend, you know, 10 years thinking about why we have the national security institutions we do, there's no other way that I could have done that in a modern American society. But if it's like not, if that's not the case, then there are so many downsides and drawbacks, then I think it's worth considering what type of life you want to lead. And again, that's something we didn't even talk about. But like, even if you could do get a tenure track job, like you have to move across the country. Like my family's from New York, but I live in Seattle and I'm really lucky, you know, and imagine if you lived in North Dakota or Idaho or somewhere I at least personally wouldn't want to live. So there's also lifestyle issues that that one has to consider when making these choices. Like even the quote unquote winners, a lot of them feel like quote unquote losers. Uh, so I think it's a really difficult thing um, <laughs> to just willy nilly go into. Yeah, it's definitely not an easy life. I think one of our first wins at Emory was like to do with these like kind of you have to move all the time. Um, so at Emory, graduate workers didn't get paid for their first two months on campus. And our first campaign was to make sure that they got like a moving stipend. We wanted the moving stipend. We didn't get that, but we did get get paid the first second year there or whatever. The university and the institutions are set up in such a way where it's presumed you're willing to either take on debt or you're already wealthy. And I think it's normally the latter. Um, mm -hmm. So... What are some wealthy. of the challenges you face? What are some of the challenges you face from other uh, graduate workers? Because to me, yeah. it sounds like all upside. It sounds like all upside, but I know in reality, there's always people find a problem with everything that involves speaking up. Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, you're going to say the same thing you do with with faculty members a lot of the time. There is just a real belief that. You know, some people deserve to be in tenure and some people don't. Um, but I think recruiting people, well, it's it's really difficult with my example because I'm in the South and in a right to work state and in, in a minority union. Um, so I have like a crazy mountain to climb. I think, though, if you're just talking to a normal everyday graduate student, maybe not in the South, right? Uh, you're, you face the kind of problems you, you, you spoke about earlier, like, don't we have a voice with the graduate, whatever, government? I have no idea what it's called. Um, graduate government, uh, you know, aren't we students? Um, kind of think, uh, you know, unions aren't perfect. SEIU has bad politics. Uh, okay, um, that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah. who is SEIU for people who don't know? Uh, Service Employees International Union. That's uh, the national that Emory is associated with. Yeah, they, they don't have perfect politics at all, I think. But, you know, humanity students need perfect politics to do anything sometimes. Uh, not just Emory, but in general, what kind of wins have people who do what you do gotten? Because cause you don't only go to your own uh, events and stuff, but you guys have a tendency to support each other, right? Like if another school is marching or whatever, your graduate worker union will go and support them. I'm guessing the logic is that if one does well, it helps the other ones do well also? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, actually, a win at Emory, we got $15 an hour. So I now make 31. My four years here, I was making 27 or something like that. Uh, and I think the same month, Duke got the same promise that they were going to be making 31 the next year or in two years. And so did uh, Washu. Okay, not their graduate workers, unfortunately, but they, Washu had gone on strike or were set up a tent city. It was so cool. It's like uh, dream life. Uh, set up a tent city in front of the administration building. They had partnered with 
janitorial workers, I think it is, uh, asking for $15 an hour. They're like, you should be paying everyone on this campus a living wage. And they did give the janitorial workers $15 an hour. And that was, again, right after Emory, because um, they saw that a win could kind of quiet everyone. But yeah. Something weird that happens now, right, is, is because class is kind of treated more like an identity than an actual real material circumstances. Oh my God. You get in this weird, you get in this weird place where an elite is just, if you have a certain type of job, more than if you actually make any money at that totally. job. So I'm sure there's a lot of people who think they see grad students marching and doing whatever and they just think, hey, aren't these guys like elites? They're they're knowledge workers. Why are they trying to act like they have it as bad as plumbers or whatever? I'm sure you guys must face like that stigma where you almost, regardless of what your material reality is, like tens to hundreds of thousands in debt, making $27 an hour, people kind of- 27, oh scoffed. please, that would be delightful. Oh no, no, oh, no I said 20 something because I don't know <laughs> oh, the actual, uh, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I'm sure there must be some kind of reflexive scoffing or people not taking it seriously as in unions are meant for like construction workers or meant for people who work with their hands or do whatever. You're just some spoiled rich kids who are going to all, all get rich because, you know, you're, you're elites, you know, like does that type of resistance ever happen? Yeah, I mean, you see it less often more and more. I mean, people are aware of economy of the university, right? People know that they're facing a terrible job market. They're just hoping for the best. And you really do, like Andre, if you end up pursuing a PhD, a lot of it is just like forcing your own delusion, uh, thinking, you know, Maybe it will happen to me. Maybe it will happen to me that I'll get a tenure job or I'll have some protections. But actually, T, you met me like, wasn't it right after I started working in the union and I got all these like hate text messages about how I wasn't actually working class, so I shouldn't be in the union or something like that? Oh, that, that, yeah, yeah that did happen. Yeah. <laughs> that was wild. I mean, it's, uh, I don't want to talk too badly about grad workers, you know, how like kind of their pushback because you can typically get someone to join the union if you just say like what do you want right you always turn it around like how can we change this university to better reflect your needs how can we change your future to better reflect your needs um, and you try and steer it away from class discussions but that doesn't mean it doesn't happen all the time but we also make it a real point i think not just Emory Unite, but graduate workers across the country have made a real point to make sure that they're standing with workers across their campuses and across their state. Uh, we were with airport workers just a few weeks ago, um, and then our airport workers come and stand with us. It's the best part about well, being Also, the Indian. airport workers actually, so, so this kind of a solidarity across different industries. What about not different industries, but within the same industry so far, as far as like in this particular example, we have you and Daniel, you know, um, is that vertical or horizontal? I forget which is which. Uh, <laughs> you with the workers across other industries, that's horizontal, right? That's horizontal solidarity. Yeah. yeah. What is the vertical solidarity uh, like? Like as far as people who are in um, Daniel's position and higher helping graduate workers out? Or is it just more of that, I'm covering my own ass? Of course, this doesn't include Daniel, of course. We're talking about the <laughs> average. No, usual, never, uh, never. Yeah. <laughs> you know what's so yeah, sad but, uh, is I had never even mm -hmm. thought to ask faculty members to kind of stand with us or you know show solidarity in any serious kinds of ways. Like sometimes they'll come and give like a labor talk about like some history and we'll be like, yeah, thank you for being here. See, see, and that's sad. That's part yeah. of the death of uh, neo. That's part of neoliberalism too. I feel like the death of mentorship, the death of you know, because everyone's too busy looking out for themselves because they're in a precarious place. No one is in a place to <laughs> mentor or nurture. You know what I'm saying? Well, I've got to but say, T, I have yeah. to say, tenure track professors are actually super not precarious. Yeah. which makes the whole thing. It's like the only job oh, that's point. actually You're not right. precarious. Yeah, I think just as someone who's now on the other side. Uh, I think it's it's really difficult because I think for, for generations of scholars, 
they don't think of themselves as laborers. They just don't think mm. of themselves as workers. So there's absolutely no... And you, and you no brought that up in the article, right? Yeah. Am I right? You brought up in the article about you guys have the, the least to lose, you should be helping us. I think you actually mentioned that. Yeah, yeah I did. Right. Just really wanted to burn all bridges. You know, I saw <laughs> one and had that going. But I think that it's it's really... I think it'll I, I think it'll change as, as basically millennial faculty rise to positions because I know in my own cohort of seven people, as far as I'm aware, last I checked, only two of us got tenure track jobs. So I think there's a larger consciousness of what the market actually means, uh, which will, I hope, foster the solidarity, the vertical solidarity that I think is absolutely crucial. And just to give it, you know, put some meat on that bone, uh, the University of Washington faculty actually voted down their union a few years ago. The graduate students are unionized, but the faculty as a whole voted down the union. Uh, I, I myself pay union dues to, to sort of the UW faculty forward, which is the sort of ersatz union. But I think a, a lot of it amongst the faculty has to do with the fact that faculty are conceived of as being a singular unit when there's actually different interests across disciplines. Like scientists are paid differently than humanities scholars who are paid differently than social scientists. So there's actually a lot of problems in the labor laws and the laws around organizing that prevent faculty from from being uh, being in an effective union. Not always, but but some Sometimes. So I, I know at my school, the humanities and social scientists wanted to unionize, as far as I'm aware. I, I don't think that's wrong. But lawyers in the business school and the medical school and the scientists didn't necessarily agree. So there's a lot of problems just thinking about from the faculty side about how to foster the sort of necessary union. I'm not sure if you mentioned this on air, but it might help contextualize your statement. Have you mentioned on air whether you're tenure track now or not? Has that and been... I, I'm tenured. <laughs> oh, okay. They, okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure that I, you said I, it on the you air. You can tell from the way he was talking reckless that he's fully <laughs> tenured. Like, you don't write an article like that unless your job is well secured. Yeah, basically, I wrote that, like, the week after I got tenure. <laughs> oh, my God. So, <laughs> literally. Okay, yeah, because yeah, I want to make sure people know. Because I know you said it. I just remember if you said it on air. I want to make sure people know that you're not asking people to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. As in, you uh, are an example of what you're talking about. Someone who doesn't have... As as much to lose and taking advantage of that. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, like, to, to be frank, I'm, I basically secured my material well-being before I started throwing bombs like this. You know, I think that's the unfortunate reality of, of, of living in, in, in the society. And I think uh, Courtney and, and Andre probably noticed amongst graduate students, there's there's a, a, a reticence, at least, to be explicitly political. Not always, but I think in a lot of a lot of cases. Yeah, a lot I have one last thing to ask. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, go on. Uh, I was going to just add to that. A lot of graduate students, you do hear, they're really afraid of retaliation. And as someone who's been retaliated against, I'm very lucky that my department has supported me. Um, but that might not be the case in every single department, right? It's completely possible um, that you're efforts in the union could, you know, affect your uh, status as a graduate worker at Emory. What I like to remind them is right now we actually have no protections anyways, so we might as well fight for them. So anyways, just in case anyone wants to join their union, listen to me talking. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, one, one last thing I want to bring up, but I want to give Andre a chance to get anything else off his chest he wanted to ask before I ended the show. So Andre, uh, to your heart's content, anything you want to ask? Yeah, what sexy dissertation should I go for, assuming that I do head towards the PhD track? <laughs> no, I'm totally kidding. I'm, I'm, I'm good on questions. Okay, I'm going to uh, go a weird but semi-related place because, uh, Daniel, you're a Watchman 
fan as well. Oh my god! <laughs> yes, 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 I am. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Andre, I'm going. I'm going to assume you have good taste. I assume that you're an Alan Moore and the Watchmen fan as well. I'm a fan of the comics. I, I, I listen. They already they got my ass with Game of Thrones. Like they they really <laughs> pulled one over on me. So I I'm I'm going to wait until the season is over before I even give this a shot. Oh, oh no, the show has nothing to do with Alan Moore. The show is not Watchmen. The show just has the name Watchmen slapped yeah, on. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, yeah. that's so, not Watchmen. I mean, being a big <laughs> fan of the comic no. book i i i wasn't even going to like uh give it a peek until the season is over and then I'm no no like, no yeah. no i'm talking about the oh, comic oh, book. we're not even <laughs> talking about the show at all okay no no there is no show called watch that's not watchman when i say okay. watchman there's only one thing that's watchman that's the comic <laughs> There's a corporate product yeah, that yeah, yeah. called itself Watchmen. That's not yeah, oh, yeah, right. yeah. Okay, so this is this is that moment where like the the the, uh, the anime meme pops up and uh, the caption at the bottom says, "I see you're also a man of culture." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm also a big fan of the Watchmen comic book. Okay, uh, Daniel and I both sent uh, Courtney. Oh my God. Primers on on Watchmen, and I'm sure she hasn't read them because <laughs> she's a she, she's a millennial. She doesn't listen to anything that anyone says. Right. But that's how she. I'm no, a delightful no, no. friend. Yes, and the reason this is relevant is today is Alan Moore's birthday. Oh, today is Alan Moore's birthday, and he got in hot water today for saying some oh, stuff. Hot water with who? With who? Uh, he got <laughs> hot water with. I guess all the. Do you think he, Alan Moore? Alan Moore worships a voodoo deity. Do you think he gives a fuck about anybody's opinion? Oh no, 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 he doesn't. He doesn't. I mean, I mean, he drinks bathes and lives in hot water. He's fine. But I've been falling down a rabbit hole of Alan Moore interview clips over this past weekend because of something that a fan sent. He sent me this video clip, and I was like, "Wow, Alan Moore's interviews are as, if not more, interesting than his even his books." And listen to listen to this quote. I thought this quote was very good and i thought it was relevant to what you guys were kind of talking about about the importance of history even like with the harriet thing and everything hold on it's very short and this is what i thought would be nice to end on i have a feeling that um the current uh tsunami of american superhero movies is really not doing our culture any good at all and I would only note that 2016, the year in which Britain voted for Brexit and in which America elected what appears to be a gigantic Nazi satsuma, six of the 12 biggest grossing films were superhero movies. This is bad news for culture. If we've got this infantilization, if we've got this refusal to grow up, a refusal to take responsibility for the adult world in which we all find ourselves taking part, and yes, this is a very complex world and it is scary, and none of us wants to admit that we are now the generation that is in charge of it, so we retreat to these fantasies of empowerment, which I previously had a distaste for after my childhood love, but now I have a kind of toxic aversion to because I really think that they are damaging culture. I think that they are damaging the human imagination. And I think that at the end of the day, they could fairly be described as white supremacist dreams of the master race. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> and... <laughs> Right? He's not and, wrong. <laughs> yeah, and and 
You're gonna be wondering like why why on earth did you play that? Besides the fact that it's uh Adam Moore's birthday. But I was thinking of what Daniel said about how people don't care about the preservation of knowledge or whatever, and how the answer to uh keeping Harriet alive is to turn her into a superhero movie because it's scary to contemplate Harriet Tubman's real life and what it means for what black people are facing today and how much things have changed. It's easier to make her a superhero, turn her into an empowerment fantasy and turn her into an escape from reality instead of something that informs our reality. And I think it really ties into this thing about how no one cares about growing up things anymore. So all these like history professors and other academics would rather chase a superhero movie job than to face the reality of what is this fucking labor market going to be like for the other people who have to follow us. These are real problems. We're in charge now. We're the grownups. We're in the academy. Some of us have tenure. We can now do grown-up things, but that's scary. I'd rather chase uh, nostalgia and dreams and live in delusion and fantasy. And I like that what you guys are talking about is reality. And in a lot of ways, it's not sexy. It's not fun to do think pieces about. You know, it's not fun to do Vox explainers about the way it is about Harriet Tubman's spidey sense, as one article uh, put it. But yeah, it's, it's, it's scary. It's scary stuff. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're talking about Harriet Tubman, you know, and, and a black person living in, in the 19th century. I mean, it, it's so wild. I haven't seen the movie that they would almost dare turn it into a superhero movie. You know, it, it really does violence to history in, in a really oh, disgusting way. And, and it and it makes people it, it, in terms of like what, what I'm also concerned with is the modern politics. It, it totally erases what people have actually faced in this country and what the white supremacist government has actually done in this country. But where does something like history fit into that? Because um, people want when people want fiction, when people want fantasy. People start even wanting the history to be fan. And that and what position does that put you guys in? That put you guys in a position to either conform to that, which is what these people seem to be doing. They're actually leaning into it. Like, you want us to be this? Okay, fine. We're going to be Stan Lee of history, you know? And or do you want to push back against that and not only preserve history, but preserve historians, you know? And I just want to say that I think what you guys are doing is commendable. Thank you. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I mean I mean I mean that wasn't really a, that wasn't really a question. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, I I think I think that's right. And then I mean, this is definitely for another another conversation. But that that also gets into questions of like, what do people actually want? Do people just like superhero movies because that's what they're being fed? Or is there actually more of a democratic and, and dialogical way that we could we could actually, you know, teach people complex stories about what really happened and have that be as equally entertaining? I mean, history is actually really entertaining. You know, the shit that happens in history is fucking insane uh and so if we actually made movies about that i think they would be as maintaining but they wouldn't reaffirm the type of liberal nationalist narrative that it sounds like harriet does so i actually think there's work to be done there and i think there's there's more possible than than what might currently be perceived i also think i I mean i mean um i think like uh you know the avoidance that we see right with maybe tenure track faculty who don't want to take a stand is kind of maybe similar to what you're talking about with Harriet. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure, but the kind of black pantherization of um, the movie world says like, look, we can make, we can do political movie movement building uh, uh, by like going and consuming political theater, uh, like as, you know, literal theater. Um, so, but again, that's like, I guess a different thing. Adolf Reed has yeah. a good article, the trouble with uplift where he talks about. Yeah. Uh, okay, we'll put that in the show notes for patrons. And 
with that, I think, you know, we're done. But if anybody has uh, any final things to plug, parting thoughts, sites you want to link, articles are going to be in show notes. Uh, both Daniel and Courtney sent me a plethora of articles <laughs> that we weren't able to work in, but I'm going to put every last article in the show notes for uh I was patrons. I was trying to, I was really trying to work them articles in there. Yeah, I'm bad at keeping things on, on topic, but there was just too much stuff. I mean, I think we were yeah, on topic, we but... Have, we would have never gotten through all them articles and... and yeah, yeah. I mean, that one, that main article was just had so much meat on the bones, but I would, I would love to, you know, continue all of this with all of you guys at some point, you know, so you're always welcome back yeah, Qu yeah Courtney's not, not a night person. Oh yeah, so, it's you know. late for you guys. Yeah, like, you guys like half dying. Sleep. Yeah. <laughs> These are like some yeah. champagne hours. Yep, yep, yep. All right, guys, thanks so much, Thank and you. everyone out there, be be nice to, to each other. Have a good one.